This is Chris Martin, and me and my buddy Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. Kevin O'Everything, host an NBA podcast called The Mismatch. They call it The Mismatch because I'm awesome and Kevin is a gigantic nerd. No, no, that's not why at all, Chris. They call it The Mismatch because I have a brain and you're a loudmouth bozo. Good grief. (laughs) Anyway, listen to our amazing NBA podcast, The Mismatch. Or don't. We really don't care. We're probably going to win a million awards either way. <laughs> Chris, we do care. So don't say that. Please subscribe and listen to The Mismatch only on Spotify. Did you really call me a bozo? <laughs> it's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and Bet Live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer. Is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Let's roll, baby. Welcome in. It is a special Wednesday and a Thursday edition of New York, New York with yours truly, J.J. John Jastrzemski. We're right here on the Ringer Podcast Network, and we tweak the schedule a little bit because I will be at Paul McCartney tomorrow night at MetLife Stadium. We don't want to slack on a pod. Perfect night to do it. Just got back from Yankee Stadium. And in case you're wondering, the New York Yankees, a 46 and 16 to start off the 22 season. I'm going to say it one more time for you. The New York freaking Yankees are 46 and 16. What a world. What a life. Steph and I were just talking about it a few minutes before we signed on. The difference between this Yankee team and last year's Yankee team. The contrast couldn't be more severe. Last year, I felt like a good three months, four months of our initial launch of the podcast was nonstop bellyaching and flat out bitching about the state of the New York Yankees, how they'd find ways to lose, whether it was lousy base running, lousy defense, bad pitching, bullpen meltdowns, you name it. This year, it is the complete polar opposite of that. And I got to admit, went to Yankee Stadium tonight. I wasn't overly confident inside. If you noticed our same game parlay that we put up on FanDuel Sportsbook, we had the over for Nestor Cortez case. Felt good about that. We had the under in the game. Ended up pushing or hitting, depending on where you got the number. And then we went with Gleyber Torres hits. That didn't go particularly well. But I don't love the Yankees tonight. thought the line was a little low. I thought it was a little fishy. Against a team that historically has given them a lot of trouble and a pitcher who has given them a lot of trouble. Well, they saw both riddles. And you know what's the theme for both of these New York teams? And it was the theme for the Yankees in the first two games of the series. Different guys stepping up and finding different ways to win. Yesterday was about the base running. Glaber heads up. 
IKF, the hitting hero, making things happen that way. Well, today, it's Aaron Judge in the first inning, and then it's Higgy, who hasn't basically had a hit all damn year, hits a three-run homer that ends up being the difference in the game. That is the sort of winning brand of baseball that you have gotten from the New York Yankees. Different guys stepping up, different guys making things happen. That's how you get to 30 games over 500 in the middle of June. And two notes. Thinking about this Yankee team. One, Clay Holmes has got to get the bulk of the save chances. And when I say the save chances, this is a mistake that a lot of folks in people and positions that I am in continue to make, and I want to correct them on it. They keep talking about the ninth inning. That is not what you should be referencing with Clay Holmes. It's about the most high leverage situation in either the seventh, the eighth, or the ninth inning. That, folks, is when you want Clay Holmes on the mound. I'll give you a perfect example. Let's say Chapman is back this weekend, and Chapman has a role on this team, and Chapman is going to be in the bullpen, and he's going to be getting big outs for the Yankees, whether you like it or not. But let's say the ninth inning lines up where Springer, Bichette, and Guerrero are coming up to the dish. I don't want to see Rodgers Chapman. That's where I want to see Clay Holmes in his .3 RA. And I know some Yankee fans with the air in the ninth inning were wondering, all right, is this going to be the night he actually gives up a run or two? The answer to that question is no. He is hands down, by far and away, the best Yankee reliever. It's not even close. He is going to get the bulk, save, high leverage chances. That's what I mean by that. That shouldn't change with the return of Aroldis Chapman. So I want to make sure that's addressed. Number two, let's keep campaigning for our dude, Nesta Cortez, to go and start the All-Star game. What a fun story. After a start where he wasn't at his very best against the Minnesota Twins, he goes and shuts down the Tampa Bay Rays again. Fabulous. And the Yankees now split the four Tropicana Field and win the first two against the Rays. I'm so happy to see it. You know how sick and tired I was of seeing the Rays pants the Yankees and embarrass the Yankees? I've seen that way too much over the last couple of years. Yankees so far this year are like, basically, enough is enough. It's time to take care of business. It's been a joy to watch. It's June. I don't want to get nuts. I don't want to put the cart before the horse. The Yankees got a lot of work to do between now and the end of this year. But 30 games over 500, you should feel damn good about that. And the belly aching and the complaining that we were doing a year ago, we're not doing any of that so far this year. And hey, I've said it multiple times on this show. I called for the manager to be fired after last year in Boston. They brought this manager back. So far, this year, it's been a wise decision. Brian Cashman took a lot of heat for some of the moves or lack thereof that happened in building this Yankee team. So far, he's feeling pretty darn good. Now, the Yankees have to go and win a championship. The Yankees have to go and get to a World Series before the entire front office and the hierarchy and you name it is taking bows. But when you are 30 games over 500, when you are on a record-setting pace to start off 60 games, basically, of a major league season, I'm enjoying it. I'm feeling good about it. And if you don't like it, too freaking bad. How about that? Great night out at Yankee Stadium. Aside from that dopey delay in the eighth inning, I don't know what the hell that was. You needed 20 minutes to figure out, all right, this is a second mound visit. Give me a break. That was embarrassing. You know, we talk about pace of play all the time in Major League Baseball. That was a joke. I mean, being there, too, it's like enough already. Let's go. Let's get the show on the road. Great night at Yankee Stadium. Now, it was not a great night out at City Field. And, you know, I host, or I'm not a host. I, I fill in host. But I'm a part of the Baseball Night in New York tour on SOI. Love doing that show. It's a ton of fun. Sal Akata and the boys, we, we really enjoy it. I had to give out a same-game parlay for tonight's game. And normally, we don't like to pick against the Mets while I'm on there. Because, listen, they're playing the the show at City Field. You know, you got a lot of people watching. I, I, I don't need to hear from the higher-ups, hey, you did SGP today with the Milwaukee Brewers leading the way. Didn't want that. Of course, every leg of the same, same game parlay hits. I go with the under instead of the Brewers and ends up being a loser. But, you know, that's, that's my luck. That's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And look, not a great night for David Peterson. Not a great night for the Met bullpen. Outside of Jeff McNeil hitting Corbin Burns, the Mets did absolutely nothing on offense. And I got news for you. 
These sort of games are going to happen over the course of 162. Mets had a good win last night. They get absolutely pummeled in this game today. And listen, I have no reason to be sounding the alarm or panicking when it comes to the New York Mets when they currently sit here with a record of, wait for it, 41 and 23 on the season. But if you check Twitter and you talk to the woe is me version of the Met fan, the woe is me version, what are they going to reference? They're going to reference the fact that the Atlanta Braves have won 14 straight baseball games. And all of a sudden now, the Met gaudy National East division lead has been dwindled down to four. And I think the question in Metland is basically, is that something that should sound the alarm? I'm here to calm all y'all down. For those of you who are freaking out. Not all of you, but some of you who are freaking out. You shouldn't be surprised. Maybe you missed the memo. The Atlanta Braves won the World Series last year. The Atlanta Braves have a really good team. I expected the Atlanta Braves to make a run. If we were talking about the Mets losing 8 out of 10 and playing lousy baseball and, and, and situations like that were coming to the forefront, I think you'd have more legitimate concern. The Mets are still playing really good ball. They went 5-5 five and five without their two best pitchers. They didn't have Alonzo for a game or two. They didn't have Marte for a game or two. And usually when they go on the West Coast, that's when the season goes to die. The Mets going 5-5 five and five on the West Coast trip, they did a really good job on that West Coast trip. They got an opportunity on Thursday to go and win a series against the Milwaukee Brewers. Then they welcomed the Marlins to town. And guess what? You got the Braves for a boatload of games coming up rather soon. Those games are going to dictate the terms to whether or not you're going to win a division title. And I've kind of been steadfast on this. I think the Mets are the best team in the NL East. Remember, the Mets are playing right now without their two best pitchers. They don't have Scherzer, and they don't have DeGrom. You don't see the Atlanta Braves until July 11th at Turner Field. I would have to assume that at least one of those guys, if not two of those guys, will be back when the Mets are taking on the Atlanta Braves. You have a lead without those two guys, you're going to sign for it. You're going to take it. Don't fall into the trap of panicking if you're a Mets fan. Don't do it. Now, if this team goes and loses, I don't know, 10 out of 13 games and they're playing poorly, we can have a different conversation. But right here, right now, the idea that I'm going to be panicking about the Mets because the Braves are now red hot and they can't lose a baseball game. You think the Braves are going to win 25 games in a row? Hey, if you do, more power to you. That that would be my advice. And I'll start worrying about the standings and where the Mets stand and where they're at when the Braves surpass the New York Mets. Right now, the Mets still have that four-game lead. They still got a lot of games head-to-head. Cool the Jets. Rough night for the Mets. Go win the series against the Brewers on Thursday, but cool the Jets. And by the way, I will be at City Field for the first time this year on Saturday. I have an event I am going to. I'm looking forward to it. Afternoon game. Now, the event I'm going to is actually in the suite, which is actually fantastic because that way I can put the feet up, have a couple cocktails. Mets will be in front of me. Yankees will probably be on the television screen. I'll probably be about 10 Stella Artois deep, and I'll be having one hell of a time. So I am looking forward to that on Saturday. First time at City Field. And the next time I'll be at City Field, mm, July 26th to 27th for the Yankees and the Mets. And it's funny, yesterday in our little Spotify Live, and by the way, our Spotify Lives, now that the Rangers are eliminated, we're back on Tuesday. Tuesday night, after baseball, after I do S&Y, it's a given, we're chatting every week. I don't want to think about the potential of a Subway Series around town. I, I, I don't. As great as it would be for the show, as great as it would be for the city, I can't handle it. I can't handle it. Long way to go before we're dreaming about that. But like somebody asked me, oh, would you like the idea of a subway series? I was like, no, no. Because to me, there's there's everything to lose from a Yankee perspective and there's nothing to gain. Nothing to gain. 
Like, if the Mets are going to be in the World Series, I'd rather the Yankees are not involved. And if the Yankees are going to be in the World Series, I'd rather the Mets are not involved. Like, I, I, I can't handle that stress. And if you don't live in New York, you might not understand, but you deal with your neighbors. I'm on television. I work for the network of the Mets. Like, it'd be great for me. I can't handle it. Because my worst nightmare of the Mets beating the Yankees is a possibility. Risk-reward, you know? Does the reward outweigh the risk? To me, the answer to that question is no. Risk management, 101. All right, voicemails right out of the gate. 917-382-1151 is where we make our magic. A little baseball reaction. The Mets fans sound in the alarm. They shouldn't be. Yankees can do no wrong. Let's hear them. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Voicemail time. Let's hear them. 917-382-1151. Reminder, Spotify Live will be on Tuesday every single week. We'll have a pod again on Sunday. No pod on Thursday night because I'm going to be singing the tunes of Paul McCartney, and I'll give you a little bit later on in the pod some of the songs I'm looking forward to. There's three in particular. Two Beatles songs, one Paul solo. But anyway, I digress. Steph, let's hear some voicemails. JJ, Sully in Somerset, first-time caller, long-time listener. Dude, things are good right now. First two from Tampa, arch nemesis, Kevin Cash, go fuck yourself, dude. Um. I don't know about you, but I mean, when's the last time you felt this good about a Yankee season? I mean, when Kyle Higashioka is cranking out three-run homers against the fucking Rays ace and McClanahan, unbelievable. Just, it's like, it's it's unreal right now, dude. And Clay Holmes, what can you say about him? It's, uh, you know, you hate to put him in the same breath as Mariano Rivera, but so far... When, who's the last closer you felt as comfortable with coming in as with a one-run lead in the ninth inning? It's unreal. Getting a little ahead of ourselves. Get, you know, trade deadlines a month away. I think Andrew Benintendi makes way too much sense. Stick him out field, contact hitter, porch job here and there. I don't know, man. What do you think? I think it makes too much sense. See you, man. Silly, I love the passion. I love the call. Thanks for chiming in to many more. Um, I'm glad everybody's on the wagon with Benintendi. I've been on this now for two plus years. I wanted Benintendi over Joey Gallo for what it's worth. I think it's fair to say I was right on that one. I felt really good about the 2019 team. Remember, that was the next man up Yankees. They won the division with these. They had a tremendous regular season. The difference between this team and the 2019 team, this team's got more ways to beat you. This team's starting pitching is flat out way better than the 2019 team. We didn't have Garrett Cole, who's pitching with the Astros. And what was the 2019 pitching rotation? It was Tanaka. It was Jay Happ. It was beat up Severino and openers. That was the Yankee playoff rotation. It's a much different feel. And Paxton. I forgot about Paxton. It was Paxton. Then they went with an opener. Hap was pitching out of the bullpen. It was a disaster. Total disaster. They didn't have the pitching to contend with Cole and Verlander. This team has the elite level pitching. They play much better defense. They're more well-rounded. They run the bases. They're balanced. They're a terrific team. They got to get to a World Series. The pressure that they will be feeling in October is significant. But you hit on something. It's a different guy every night. Yeah, Aaron Judge hit a home run the first inning. That's terrific. But the biggest swing in the game was Kyle Higashioka hitting a three-run homer. A guy's done nothing basically all year. Against the Raves ace, 
That's when you know you got it humming and firing on all cylinders. And the Yankees, make no mistake, they are firing on all cylinders every which way. Who's next? What's going on, JJ? It's Andrew from Brooklyn. Just wanted to check in real quick on a Yankee point. Yankees just got the victory tonight. Nestor Cortez on absolute fire. He's got to be the leading candidate for the Cy Young right now. He's got to be the leading candidate to start the All-Star game for the American League. I guess I'm just wondering, is this guy going to get more buzz? Is he going to get more play? I feel like he's not really being talked about on the national stage just yet. At what point do we get my boy Nasty Nestor some love? All right, JJ, I'm out of here. Peace. Well, I appreciate that, number one. Terrific passion, number two. And number three, I mean, on this show, we've been giving Nestor Cortez love going back to last year. So we've been ahead of the curve when it comes to praising my guy, Nasty Nestor. The stash, the funk, the flair, the bravado. We've been all in on that. He is an all-star. He has been one of the most valuable New York Yankees without question. And yeah, we're talking about guys to start the all-star game. It's Nesta Cortez and Justin Verlander. And I don't want to disrespect Verlander in any way. He's a future Hall of Famer. He's had an exemplary career. The fact that he's come back from Tommy John surgery is a testament to the hard worker and the sort of warrior that he is on the mound. I wanted the Yankees to sign Berlander. I wanted the Yankees to trade for Berlander in 2017. So I don't want to be disrespectful. He started the All-Star game. He's been there. He's done that. Golly, Nesta Cortez. I mean, to have a story like this, it's great for baseball. And more importantly, it's a game changer for the New York Yankees. They wouldn't be 30 games over 500 if they weren't getting Nestor contributing the way that he has. I like the Yankee rotation going into the year. I really did. I thought some of these guys are going to be better than expected, better than advertised, getting Severino back. I've always liked Montgomery. I've always liked Nestor. But everybody has exceeded expectations. I mean, the fact that, that Garrett Cole has the highest DRA among Yankee starters and it's like 3-3, it's basically all you need to know. Who's next? Hey, JJ, this is Anthony from out in Scranton. Uh, giving you a call because I'm interested to hear your thoughts on with Chapman coming back, how it's going to work with Clay Holmes because we all just watched him shut the door on the Rays and he's closed 11 out of 11 save opportunities he's had here for the Yankees. Um, and I understand Chapman's been our guy for the past couple of years, but there's no doubting his struggles and his drop in velocity, which may be attributed to injury. But anyways, I mean, we have a good thing going. Um, I know it's a chemistry thing that if we if we brought him back and he wasn't the closer, but just, just, just interested to see what you're going to say about it because uh, I'd like to see him maybe in the eighth. I, I just think we're in a great spot, and um, although I'd love him back, I, I, I don't think it's the right move to just peg him as the closer again or you can take away closer responsibilities from Holmes of how well he's been doing. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. It's a really good question. Look, in the early stages of bringing Chapman back, you're going to ease him back. You're not going to just thrust him right in the safe situations. Remember, Clay Holmes can only go a certain amount of time. You don't want to use him three days in a row. There will be opportunities for both Holmes and Chapman to close. But in the highest leverage situations, Chapman's got to understand he's not the best Yankee reliever. He's not. Clay Holmes has a .3 array. So, biggest of spots against Toronto and those three guys I mentioned, or even if you're facing the Red Sox, and I see the likes of Devers and Bogarts and J.D. Martinez coming up, I'm more confident to Clay Holmes to get him out than I do a roll to Chapman. And until that changes, that's got to be Holmes' responsibility. Case closed. Last but not least. Change. It's Sean from Long Island. I'm on my way home from the Wednesday night victory against the Rays. Glad to know we've already won the series. Going for the sweep tomorrow. But I have a grievance to air in this forum. And I hope every single Yankee fan, no, every single baseball fan within the sound of my voice hears this and takes it out. Stop doing the fucking wave. It was the top of the eighth inning. Two out. Miguel Castro was pitching. And some low-attention fan dipshit 
started the wave, and the whole stadium, for some reason, decided to follow them. What happens next? I think a walk, and then a hit by pitch. Then Luke Licky comes in and lets in those two runs. Those two guys who came on base during the wave. My friends, it is time. If somebody tries to start the wave during a close game, shame them. Shame them as the child they are. We are adults. We can pay attention during a game without some mindless woo going. It's insane. It's stupid. If you cannot pay attention to the game, do not go to the game. Stay home. There are lots of bells and whistles for you to play with at home. If you're at the game, fucking don't just be a fucking distraction. Don't make it about you. That's the wave. Making it about you. And it was a close game against the wave, against a divisional opponent in this stacked fucking division. I'm losing my fucking mind over this, JJ. Stand the fucking wave. I love it, Sean from Long Island. I absolutely love it. I felt the exact same way you did. I ran it about this last year. And during the game, you're right, 4-1. to one. I don't want to hear about the 15, 20-minute delay. The idea that in a pressure-packed situation with Licky on the mound, I got to see dopes doing the wave across Yankee Stadium as the Yankees are trying to win another game is insufferable. And if you were a part of that wave tonight, shame on you. If you're a part of the wave moving forward, shame on you. It's lame. It's corny. It's stupid. Simple as that. It is the absolute worst. Take the wave and do it somewhere else. Not at Yankee Stadium. Calls are good tonight. You guys were into it. Should be. I mean, listen, maybe the Mets fan not so into it tonight. I can't blame them. Rough night. And I think most Mets fans are not sounding the alarm. There are some that are, but not all. Yankee fan fired up. 30 games over 500. A lot to be smiling about. We're going to have Jay Billis in a moment, who I love. I mean, listen, I love my college basketball. The team of him, McDonough, and Raftery is one of my favorite announcing teams of all time. And on the draft, like, he, he's dialed in. He's got a good feel. He's got a good sense for these guys. So you're going to enjoy this conversation. But we haven't talked about this because we've been in, like, Rangers hoopla. And right now, it's kind of like the, the calm before the storm in NBA land as you're waiting for the finals to wrap up which could happen as soon as Thursday night, or maybe we're talking about Sunday night, and then you really get full throttle into the offseason. I've thought about this from a Mitchell standpoint. I want Donovan Mitchell on the Knicks. The guy is an assassin at the end of these games. He's got the ties to New York City. His dad's got a front office job with the Knicks. He wants to be here. I want him here. Let's get it done. Now, there are some issues in play. Number one, are the Knicks going to have the most appealing offer that's out there? If a team like Miami, for example, comes a calling, Miami has more to offer. I understand that. I'm hoping that Donovan Mitchell pulls the flex and basically says, the only place I want to go is the New York Knicks. That's what I'm praying for. The only guy to me that is completely off limits when we're talking about a trade is RJ Barrett. Now, I don't think I'm going out on much of a limb by saying that. I don't think that is a particularly outrageous statement. That's the one guy I want to hold on to. At all costs. I would prefer to keep Obi Toppin. I would prefer to keep Emmanuel quickly. But I'm not letting them get in the way of me getting a legitimate star. And I know that last year, Donovan Mitchell's star maybe took a little bit of a hit. The injuries, the way the Utah Jazz played, on and on we go. This guy would embrace the moment of being a New York Knickerbocker. Like, that idea fires me the hell up. Knicks need a guy like that. Look, this front office has kind of waited and waited and waited to go and push their chips in the middle of the table for a big-time move. They did not kill themselves catastrophically with the moves they made last summer, but they all ended up being monumental flops. I mean, you go through the laundry list of moves that were made. Bringing Noel back. Not going to kill my Burks because I wanted Burks back. Um, the Fournier contract, which I couldn't stand and I thought was an out-and-out disaster. Maybe they find a taker. I'm praying they find a taker for Julius Randle, clearly, but I want Mitchell. And if it doesn't involve R.J. Barrett, I'm going to be in. I'm going to be completely in. So I don't know how the Knicks accomplish that between now and the middle of summer. I don't know where Donovan Mitchell ends up. I hope it's him. Selfishly, 
not stunning anybody by saying that. I hope it's here. So when Bills comes out, we'll go through all the draft prospects. There are a lot of guys I'm intrigued about. There's no way in the world I would take Holmgren with the number one pick. I mean, I just wouldn't do it. To me, I like too much of Jabari Smith. I like too much of Ben Chero. I would go with both of those guys over Chet Holmgren. But again, maybe he ends up being the supersonic, the, 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 uh, the shining star, the, un- the unlikely unicorn. Maybe, maybe. I see a 7'3 skinny twig. That's what I see. And I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant on how that's going to ha- you know, go over over a period of time in the NBA. But I'm not drafting at the top of the draft. So Jay Billis has his big board. The Knicks have a pick. Is it a Mitchell Robinson replacement or a sharpshooter? Stay tuned. The great Jim Billis of ESPN is up next. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida. We'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Fired up, getting ready for the NBA draft. We welcome in a guy who I love hearing on the college basketball. He's getting ready for all the ESPN coverage over the next couple of weeks. The great Jay Billis. Jay, good morning. How are you? I am doing great. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Jay, my pleasure. And, you know, I was thinking about our feelings and our perceptions of draft busts yesterday when I'm watching the NBA Finals because first couple of years of Andrew Wiggins' career, a lot of people would have deemed Andrew Wiggins, dare I say, a draft bust as a guy who is a number one overall pick. Isn't he in many ways like the perfect example of the patience at times you got to show with a player and the fact that, hey, situation sometimes just means just about everything? Yes. I mean, you know, it's a question of expectations. And the truth is expectations are an external word. And Andrew didn't draft himself number one. Somebody drafted him number one. But what comes with that is a lot different than get dra- getting drafted even at two or three. You know, for some reason, that one spot carries with it a weight that other spots don't carry. So whether it's, uh, you know, Greg Oden or, uh, you know, Anthony Bennett, whatever it is, um, if they had been drafted at different spots, then it didn't work out for whatever reason for injury or whatever. Um, it doesn't carry with it that, that same sort of weight. So you kind of feel for them, uh, in one regard. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's big boy school now. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the way it is. But Wiggins is, has always been a, a great talent. I think the question with Wiggins when he came out was he checked every box except there was a concern for, you know, does he love the game and the grind and does he want to be, you know, that kind of player? And nobody knew the answer to that. Um, you know, the, one of the things, too, when you're drafted number one is if you pass on a guy like that and he turns out to be what, what – the, the position expects and then you look back with a tremendous amount of regret so that that's why sometimes you know in a draft like this year's it might not be so bad to be uh be the rockets uh because you know you take uh what falls to you and you don't have the same sort of of criticism that goes with it i mean it's a we all none of us should operate with concern over the external um but but we all tend to do that anyway you mentioned the weight of being the number one pick. So as we're getting ready for this draft, it seems like one of three guys. It's Banchero, it's Holmgren, it's Jabari Smith. Do you see a clear-cut number one, Jay? Or as you're getting ready, as you're doing your preparation, you kind of see this as a wide-open three-horse time to race? No, it's a two. It's two. Oh, it's, you're going two. Okay. Yeah, it's Holmgren and Smith for the number so one. So you don't spot. see Banchero as the number one guy, just compared no, to the ben- other two. No, Banchero's going to go number three to Houston. So the the big question is just from the draft, not not looking down the road as to who's going to be the better player. That that leads into another another issue. Uh, I think there's a, a consensus that uh, Smith and Holmgren. Uh, are are the top two prospects and and the only two that are are really vying for the number one pick. 
Now, the consensus doesn't really matter because there are only two teams choosing one and two. Uh, but, but I think it's pretty solid there. And that gets you to the idea of, you know, there's a difference between where we think players are going to go based on the intel and what people think, what the decision makers think. And then later on, you know, who's going to be the best player? And so when I first got involved in, in the NBA draft with ESPN, we got the draft in 2003. That was the LeBron draft. And that was the first time I had done some draft work for us. That was the first time I was going to be sitting at the desk and, and really responsible. And I, I had, kind of like Mel Kuyper, I had a best available list that we started. And my, uh, my thing with ESPN was I am not going to do a mock draft. It's not going to be based upon, solely based upon what the NBA thinks. It's going to be only what I think. And now, can I, can I sit here and tell you that I'm not influenced in some way by the group think of, of where people are going to be slotted and drafted, where players are going to be. Of course I'm influenced by it, but I try, I try to think where are these guys going to be down the line? How do I think they're going to do and then slot them that way? And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not, not perfect at it. Um, I, I try to examine it, but it's a, it's a difficult chore. Um, you know, my top three are, are those, those three. And uh, I have Smith, Holmgren, Bancaro are, are the top three on, on my list. And I don't have a board. Some people have a big, they call it a big board. I don't have a board. There's uh, no Jay Billis <laughs> big board. You don't have like the magnets and you're sliding them down as you're getting ready over the next couple of weeks. I'm disappointed. I thought I would no, see I that. Have a, I have a ratty legal pad. Nice. Uh, with, yeah, with doodles on it from the airplane and stuff like that. Um, I'm not that big of a deal that I have a board. Um, but uh, it, it is kind of a, a, a mental chore to uh, not, you know, not be concerned about being seen as right to where, where teams are picking now and sort of be, you know, be right on draft day as to how it comes out. But, you know, my idea was to look back on it in 10 years and say, how did I value these guys based upon what they're going to accomplish over a 10-year career or so? When you and think about have, that 03 big board, LeBron one, Carmelo two? No, I had Darko two. You I did have Darko two. Okay. Yeah, I thought maybe I the Syracuse 03 title might have bumped Carmelo over the edge for you. No, I, I was I was with everybody else there after you saw, you know, what he could do, but but it wasn't in a five on five capacity. And then uh I remember this very clearly uh, I was up uh visiting Tom Crean in Milwaukee and we went to the uh the Bucks were playing the Pistons when Darko was a rookie I believe and you know went to practice for the Pistons and talked to their coaching staff and they were like man this guy is the real deal and he is going to be great and all this stuff everybody everybody kind of believed it and it didn't work out but that's sort of what I was talking about before is is you know with Wig when we were talking about Wiggins is it's not an exact science um, you know, really smart basketball people, you know, you don't know and you believe, you know, you have beliefs based upon the information you gather. And that's why I think Jerry West is, if not the best of all time, one of the best of all time, not because he had a magic eye or has a magic eye. It's because he was in the gym all the time and he was gathering information and, and making, making informed judgments. Nobody's right all the time in this stuff. It's impossible. And, and I've looked at some other sports like football has like four years to look at these prospects, sometimes five, and they make egregious errors like, like basketball does. And it, it's, it's really, it's really difficult. And that's why, you know, in, in our position of, you know, being critical sometimes of, of decisions and look at this, how could they have done that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm self-critical of, of my stuff. Like I've made some, ridiculous judgments over the years when you look back on them um so i'm i'm probably a lot more respectful of this process now as i than i was you know 20 years ago when i first started i agree with you jabari smith if i had a big boy jay maybe i'll have to work on one of those even though i'm not exactly a so-called draft expert i'd have him number one but curiously why jabari smith over chet holmgren it's a hard um it was a hard decision honestly um because both of them are worthy of it. 
And that's sort of the issue when you start slotting on it. It's not like you're definitively saying, well, this guy's better and there's no, no question about it. So Jabari Smith reminds me a little bit of, um, like he's got some Richard Lewis in him. Um, and, and I think he's got some Durant in him. I don't know that he has Durant's drive to be, you know, the leading scorer in the league. Uh, but he, he, he's a beautiful jump shooter. He's 6'10". Uh, he can block and change shots. He rebounds his position, and he can defend. Like, he can switch off on multiple positions. He's, he's athletic, and he's got it all. Really fluid. Um, so I, I really like him. The, the Holmgren thing, you know, people say he's a unicorn. I do think we've seen players like him in the past. But for my Neanderthal brain at my age, I'm still, there's still some old-school thought in, that, in this brain of mine. And when you see his body, you know, his body, the first thing I, I thought of when I first saw him was, God, he felt like Sean Bradley. Yeah, he's a and, twig. But, he's like me, for yeah. goodness sakes, except he's way more skilled than he's 7'3", basically, Jay. No, you're bigger than he is. And, and <laughs> you've got more meat on you than he does. And, and that's and, saying something. But you don't see that body style that often in the NBA, if at all. And when you have seen it, um, it probably hasn't worked out as well. But the game's different now. So he's not a low post big guy. Um, he's a perimeter big guy. He's more of a three, four hybrid than he is five. He's not going to play the five spot. So he's not going to be banging against uh, Artis Gilmore and Bob Lanier. You know, that's not what he's going to do. Um, but, but the one thing that, and we've talked about this sort of with our draft coverage, is that we want to be um, intentional about conveying is that he's tough and, and he's competitive. So, so you can let that body style fool you a little bit. And, and, you know, again, my old school thinking, I've had to really, uh, work on the idea that don't let, you know, your old school, you know, thinking about his body, um, infect the rest of your view of, uh, of him because he's really, really good. And Mike Schmitz, who, who has been, I think is as good, a, a talent evaluator as I've ever been around. You know, he says, I take Holmgren number one, period. And I don't hesitate. And it's not to say he doesn't love Jabari Smith or Jaden Ivey or Paolo Baccaro, but he's he's a believer. And, you know, Mike just took a job with the Portland Trailblazers as an assistant general manager. So he you know, sadly, he's not going to be on our draft coverage this year. But, um, you know, it's that sort of that sort of thing. Like he's firmly Holmgren. I wouldn't say I'm firmly Jabari Smith. But, but that's what I've decided upon. Um, but it's, you know, that's sort of the, the rub here and the difficult decision for Orlando at number one. And it's not just the, the who do you think is the better player. Then you, ha- then you factor in the really hard part, which is convincing yourself, do you go with who you think is best or do you factor in fit and need? So, so if you feel like you need a player at the position of Jabari Smith over Holmgren, how much does that factor in to best available? If that makes sense, and and those are those are hard decisions, and uh, and that's why sometimes it might might not be the worst thing to be Oklahoma City, because that decision kind of gets made for you, um, and it makes it a little bit easier. My Knicks, I think they're in the market for a big. I saw Williams destroy Syracuse every time he played him. Jay, it wasn't even fair. Uh, that body, that presence on defense, I think he'd be an unbelievable fit. Duran played really well at Memphis. I tell you, you can have one of those two bigs for the Knicks. Williams or Duran, who's a better fit? I, I take Williams uh, because I think he's uh, he projects a lot like Rudy Gobert. You're talking Mark Williams of Duke, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Who I'm getting I nightmares about because I think he's blocking Buddy Beheim shots as we speak. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I see him as a top 10 player in this draft. Um, he's not he's not yet a uh, uh, a shooter. So a guy who's going to knock down a 17-foot uh, jumper and uh, and be able to stretch it out to three-point. But is that really what you're looking for and what you need? So he is um, he's a big-time shot blocker. Uh, he gets off his feet really quickly and moves his feet very well. Uh, his, his change rate of shots is, is incredible. Like he changes and his presence changes a ton of shots in addition to the shots that he blocks. And he's a, he can run and he's a great lob threat. Um, he's got second jump capability. Um, so I like him a lot 
you know, it, just like with, with a lot of big guys, uh, especially his size and position, does there were teams that tried to take advantage of him one to pull him away from the basket that was the the, the first goal but a lot of he, he was put in a lot of pick and roll situations high pick and roll stuff where they tried to get him away and north carolina did it to him quite a bit and you know sort of his lateral movement he's not he's not like christian coloco from uh, arizona that man if that guy switches off to a point guard he can guard him the rest of the uh, possession and i've seen him do it multiple times like he's he's more advanced in that regard but uh, I don't think that would keep me from taking Williams. And I do think his offense, he's a good free throw shooter. You know, he shoots 70 something. I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me, but he, I think he shoots around 75% for the free throw line. And, uh, and that's, that's an indicator that he can continue to improve his perimeter shooting and, and get there someday. And that, that's why I'm always careful that, you know, when you say a guy can't, you know, doesn't shoot it, you know, it, it, with him, you know, you say that he doesn't shoot it yet. Um, because I think, especially on the NBA level, when they work on it so much, he can, that's one of those things that he can develop. Your big board, do you have Davis or Griffin higher? Griffin. Um, but that's another tough one because Davis is more advanced in other areas. Johnny Davis of Wisconsin is more advanced in some other areas, uh, including his ability to do things with the ball after the catch. Um, AJ Griffin of Duke is a uh, is a better shooter, and uh, he's probably the percentage wise probably the best shooter at that position in the draft. I think he shot around forty six percent from three, and and he was coming into this season as a as a freshman after after having not played for almost a year and a half because of injury. And I don't think it's injury stuff that's long term a long term detriment where you know he's going to be injured. But, um, you know, he, he, he can really shoot and he's got an excellent shot fake and he's not been in his, um, with his team, he was not like a pick and roll handler that often. Uh, Davis is more, is a little bit better now with the ball and creating his own. Uh, but, but both of them are good, but, but Davis doesn't shoot it like Griffin does. I give you a guy outside the lottery as far as projections that I should be keeping an eye on that maybe would be like the ideal late first round pick who is like the Jay Billis favorite when it comes to that. Coloco. Um, uh, and then, uh, uh, I, yeah, I would say Coloco and then his teammate, uh, oddly enough, uh, Dale and Terry, um, both from Arizona, uh, you know, Coloco's over seven feet, uh, similar to, uh, Mark Williams. He's got those attributes, lob threat, run, block shots, rebound, but his, you know, you're taking him primarily as a defensive, uh, a player on the defensive end that can really help because of his ability. Like he really can, like a lot of times you'll hear Schlepp like me talk about, well, I could guard multiple positions. And, you know, we say that a lot, almost too much with players and maybe don't define it as much. Uh, Coloco really can switch off onto anybody and uh, he did it, you know, I had their game against Oregon and it was a great game, but late in the game, he switched off onto uh, two guards and, and guarded them the rest of the possession. Will Richardson was one. Um, and, and if not for that and his ability to guard those guys and really stay in front of them and affect their shots at the rim, they don't win. Arizona doesn't win that game. And uh, there aren't a lot of big guys that can do that and certainly do that to that level. So I would say Coloco. And, I, you know, there's some places, you know, I look at some of these mock drafts and um, they're informative, but they're not dispositive, obviously, of the issue. So um, it seems like he's looking at a second round uh, from the consensus, but I think he's a first round pick. He would be for me. You saw these guys in college. They've obviously evolved over time. I tell you. Donovan Mitchell, R.J. Barrett playing together. Good fit, bad fit. Good fit, yeah. Um, because uh, that's what I'm hoping for, Jay Billis, for my beloved New York Knicks. You know, that's all yeah, I ask. Yeah, Donovan was one of those guys that that when he came out of Louisville, um, he wasn't as well regarded as as his NBA career, maybe even his draft showed. Um, and I was a believer. He was one of those guys when I got asked the question, like, who's the, you know, who's the sleeper? And you'd say, Donovan, that was one of the years I was right. I don't talk about the ones I was wrong. 
Uh, I, I, I agree. Them, I would but, forget about those. And I, yeah. I, for what it's worth, you know, the Knicks could have had him. They wanted to take a guy by the name of Frank Milakina instead. But again, uh, I, I digress. I digress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've all made those those judgment errors, uh, especially looking back. But, you know, Mitchell's a, was a great baseball player. Like, he could have been, you know, his dad was with the Mets and he could have been a he could have been an outstanding baseball player. But he had that he had that drive, you know, like where he didn't take a backseat to anybody, and and obviously he's proven that in the NBA. So um, I remember Quinn Snyder. Uh, I, Quinn Snyder is a great friend of mine. We were teammates in college, and he had called and said, "What do you think of Donovan Mitchell?" And you know, Quinn's smart. He'll he'll ask you what you think before you have any inkling of what he thinks. And uh, and you know, I told him what I thought, and, and he said, "I think he's Russell Westbrook." And, uh, and he was, you know, he was right. I think Quinn valued him even more than I did. Final one. It was a great college basketball season. Duke Carolina getting that in the final four was just absolutely outrageous. You were at that last game at Cameron Indoor for Coach K. I'm wondering, Jay, was there any thought of having this ceremony for him before the game? Like, I know Duke was a double digit favorite that day. I know that was before, like, the perception of Carolina, like, totally changed. Because I think going into that game, they were like a bubble team. They needed to win to get in the tournament. They end up making it all the way to Monday night. But, like, I was thinking that as I'm watching that game unfold and, like, Carolina's playing out of their freaking minds. I'm like, I wonder why they didn't have the ceremony before the game. What what, what was the thought process there, you know? I, I don't know uh, all the all the thoughts that went into it or the decisions. Um it was uh, obviously a, an emotional sort of odd setting around the game, uh, and one that I haven't experienced before. And it was uh, a little bit of a challenge for me to, um, you know, because I was a part of that and I, I played for him and I've known him for 40 years. Um, there was an emotional side to it that you had to manage. Uh, and it was, you know, it went on for days. I mean, you know, it looked like a political convention with all the coverage around it. And we had our game day operation. We blew the we blew the lid off of it. But they had this, you know, all the former players were there. Uh, and when Coach Dave came out, you know, sort of on the floor, and I was down there in my, my little suit and tie, and I looked like an idiot relative to all the other guys. But, um, you know, there was, I think in hindsight, well, first of all, I knew it was going to be a, a close game. You know, you never know who's going to win, but I knew it was well, going to be Carolina a close game. Well, it's Carolina Duke. You throw out the record a lot of the time, right? You know what I mean? Like, I know Duke yeah. smoked them in the first game, but Carolina, like, that was that was a kitchen sink game for them, Jack. Yeah, and you never know, like, with the emotions of it. You never know how that's going to play out. You know, and I, I did say this a number of times that, you know, after the game was over, no matter who won, uh, you're going to say, you're going to talk about the emotion of it and say, well, Duke was overwhelmed by the emotion and that was a detriment or Duke rode the wave of emotion and that's why they won, whatever it was. Um, but I think, I think if they had it to do over again, they probably would have done less before the game and more after. Um, you know, the, the, win or lose, nobody's going to, like the ceremonial part of it, nobody's going to remember uh, when they look back on it, remember the result. Um, you're going to remember the emotion of the uh, the reasoning. You know, like the like the the fact that it, it was celebrating his his last game there and the last time he would coach there. The interesting part for me was I, I did the international feed for the Final Four, so I was sitting you know right next to you know the CBS booth down on the floor. And when when the Duke Carolina in the semi semifinal national semifinal when that game ended. You know, it was a really interesting feeling because I, on one hand, I was sort of enjoying watching Carolina celebrate and, and Hubert Davis because he's such a close friend of mine. Uh, and, and then, you know, when I turned my head and sort of watched Coach K walk off afterwards, um, you know, it was poignant that that was the last time you're going to see him uh, on the floor as a, uh, you know, in the role of head coach. And, uh, and there was no sadness. Um, I wasn't sad about it. Uh, there was like a, a just a feeling of gratitude, uh, obviously, of what he's done for me and what he's meant to me personally. But uh, sort of his role in the game, you know, it's a it was a a hard stop of of that type of role. He'll still be influential in the game going forward, but not in the same capacity. But it was a it, it was an interesting feeling and one I haven't really experienced before. Jay, thank you for a couple of minutes. It's always a pleasure. And uh, enjoy the lesson today. What do, 
What are we working on? The short game? We uh, we we hitting bombs? What are, what are we working on today at the lesson? I'm uh, yeah, I've got a golf lesson with my pro, and I'm just working on uh, club face contact. I, I I enjoy the feeling of the club face actually hitting the ball. I I know. Um, so I'm, I'm working on that too. I'm working on it too. You're probably doing a better job of it than me. So best of luck. Uh, enjoy the draft next week, and uh, it's a lesson, so I can't really tell you to hit him straight. Otherwise, I would, you know. Yeah, and clear all that crap out behind you and put a big board up. There, we don't. Uh, need you you don't like my bobbleheads? I was gonna say you don't like Snoopy. You want it? You want a John Chastrensky big board? All right, we'll work on that. Thanks, Jay. All right, all right, brother. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kids' education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Oh, that was fun. Billis, Mark Williams over Duran from Memphis. I agree with that. If I had the choice, I agree. I saw Williams absolutely annihilate Syracuse on a couple of different occasions. Guy's a beast. An absolute beast. Now, they're going to try and bring him out of the outside, but I think that guy will end up having a productive NBA career. So I guess that'll be a choice for the Knicks. Are they going big, getting a Mitchell Robinson replacement, or are they looking for somebody to help with the shooting uh, and maybe as a 3 and D guy? I mean, Ivy would be ideal, but they're never in a million years getting their hands on Ivy. I'd love to have a guard like that, but the Knicks aren't bad enough. So what are you going to do? All right, Jeff Money. Game six of the finals coming up. We'll see if we are aligned for our game six pick. Four is yours. What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicap for picks. This is going to be for Thursday the 16th. We got our NBA finals game number six between the Celtics and the Warriors. Now, can the Celtics lose three in a row? Well, you know what? I don't think so. I'm going to take, I'm going to roll with the Celtics minus the four points over the Golden State Warriors. I think you're going to push it to a game seven if they win. Of course, I do think they're going to cover. So, again, I'm going to roll with the Celtics minus the four. Let's see if we got a family play. Okay, J.J., everyone can always follow all my daily plays on Twitter at Jeff Money. Okay, J.J., I'm out of here. Let's go. Let's go indeed, Jeff Money. It is a family play. You want to check out Ringer Gambling, Raheem Palmer, Joe House. I'm on the Celtics for game six. Now, I do not feel great about my Celtics wager for the series because – I don't see the Golden State Warriors losing a game seven with the way they've played at home in this postseason. I felt like the Celtics had to win it in six, but it's been a very zigzag type of series. I think the Celtic role players will be better. I'm in on Boston. I'm laying the points. As far as the U.S. Open, the two guys that I like, actually, there's three guys that I'm in on. The first, Cameron Smith, who I think is poised to break through at a major. I like Cameron Smith a lot. The other guy is Shane Lowry, who I think is going to have a lot of support. He's been playing really well. I think the Boston crowd is going to eat him up. I'm in on Shane Lowry. And then the other guy is Zalia Torres, who has been in it and has been competitive and has been right there across the board. So Zalia Torres, Cam Smith, Shane Lowry, all three guys that I am considering for small shekels when it comes to winning the U.S. Open. Hopefully small shekels turning into some big shekels. And you're getting juicy odds on all three of those guys. Now, I got McCartney tomorrow. I saw him back in 2009 with the great Mike Mino. We were in the last row at City Field. This is actually the first time I was ever at City Field. Right behind home plate, and he sounded great. And I got to be honest, I left that concert saying this is probably the last time I'm ever going to see Paul McCartney. Just didn't think I'd end up seeing him again. Well, that was 2009 This is 2022, and I'll be seeing him at MetLife Stadium tomorrow. It's the first concert I've gone to in a long, long time, so I'm super stoked about it. I'm super fired up about it. And listen, the Beatles are my favorite band. And McCartney, listen, it was McCartney and Lennon, Lennon and McCartney. McCartney has the best songs, in my opinion, in the band. He's got the best songs. For me, there are three songs I want to hear tomorrow. Two are Beatles songs. One is a McCartney song. The first song I want to hear is because I watched this whole Let It Be documentary. I want to hear I Got a Feeling. Now, I don't know if they're going to do it. I don't know who's going to sing the John portion of the song, but I got a feeling, man, that would bring the freaking house down. 
So that's number one for me. That's a song I absolutely want to hear, and I'll be all about it. I'll be singing. Uh, I'll be dancing the whole spiel. The second one I got to hear is Baby Drive My Car. Off Rubber Soul. It's a rocker. It's early Beatles. I hope we get Baby Drive My Car. That's number two. And then the third one I hope we get, and this is a McCartney ballad. I don't know if he could still hit these high notes. My Love from the Wings Days. Those are the three. If I get two of the three, I'm going to be really, really happy. I got a feeling, drive my car, my love. Band on the Run and Live and Let Die are probably his best wing songs, but my love is, is beautiful. Maybe I'm amazed too, but I, I'm not a huge fan of Maybe I'm Amazed. I, I think it's a little played out. Like, that's the thing for me. When I go to the concert, I, I, I don't need to hear all. Like, if I didn't hear Yesterday Tomorrow, I'm not going to be upset. I've heard the song a zillion times. Am I going to hear Yesterday? Probably. Am I going to hear you? Hey, Jude, probably. But I'm looking forward to it. McCartney, MetLife Stadium, DVR in the NBA Finals. So pray for me. And then uh, we'll be keeping tabs on the baseball. Don't you worry. We'll be keeping tabs. Hopefully the Yankees taking care of the sweep. Remember, no pot on Thursday. We are back Sunday night. So enjoy a little extended New York, New York absence. We're back Sunday. I hope all the dads out there have a very happy Father's Day. Stefan, fabulous job as always. JJ, signing off. Enjoy your Thursday. Enjoy your weekend. Be good, everybody.